0: This is CYBOC, the cybersecurity body of knowledge distilling the knowledge from internationally recognized experts and providing foundational education and training for the cybersecurity sector. Hello, and welcome to CYBOC. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Joining us today is David Basin, professor for information security at ETH Zurich. The knowledge area we're discussing today is formal methods for security. The knowledge
1: area is about how do you build and implement systems that are secure. The way it's often handled is people implement something, they play with it a little bit, they test it a little bit, they release it, and the question is whether one can put this on a firm mathematical footing. So this is a topic that goes back to the 1960s in the work of Hoare, Milner, and other pioneers. It's the question of how can you give systems and their properties that you would like from them a very precise mathematical meaning, and how can you design them in a way that is somehow true to or reflects this mathematical meaning. This is super important for security because security it's a great application for formal methods because these techniques can be used to eliminate precisely the kinds of small bugs that attackers can exploit.
0: Why mathematical? Why is that that the proper underpinning for something like this?
1: So I mean mathematics in the broad sense. Um, I mean things like discrete mathematics, uh, in particular uh, symbolic formal logic is important. At the end of the day, it's about giving things an unambiguous meaning so if, for example, you're doing design and you go to a blackboard and you draw boxes and arrows and uh, and little pictures and the like, that doesn't have a mathematical meaning. Hmm. People can implement very different things and think that they mean what you put on the board. But if you put things in the world of mathematics, then you stand on a very firm foundation where it's very unambiguous what you've specified. And also by giving things a mathematical meaning, you open the door to mathematical proof you can not just sketch high-level intuitive arguments of why your system does what it should. You can actually prove it, and you can use tools such as theorem provers or model checkers to help you with those proofs.
0: Are there limitations here? I mean, can can math only take you so far?
1: Theoretically, there are um, different types of limitations. In practice, they're not so much of a concern. One limitation is in a given formal system, so this goes back to Gödel. There are True things that you might want to establish about the numbers or about your system, etc., but you can't prove in the given formal system. In practice, it's not a concern. A more serious concern, mathematically, is that there are problems which are algorithmically undecidable. So if you give me a computer program and you ask me very basic things about it, the, the classic example is, does it terminate or does it print out the number seven? There is no algorithm that can solve that in general, for all programs that you give it that can that that can solve it correctly and even when things are decidable the decision procedure may require enormous amounts of computation time or space so these are concerns in practice and they're a limit to what you can achieve using algorithmic verification methods so sometimes it's necessary for humans to come in and actually If you're doing machine-checked proofs, guide the prover with intuition, with lemmas and things like that um, to help get the proofs done. And this can often be a source of, um, let's put it this way, challenges in practice because large systems can be quite complex. And to carry out proofs about them and to guide a prover, you really have to understand why they are correct, why they are secure. Um, on the the flip side of the coin, though, is that's actually a very useful exercise to think deeply about your system before you set it on the real world.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's really a fascinating aspect. I can see you know, the insertion of the human element being both a, a benefit and a potential vulnerability in that, as you say, it gives a fresh set of eyes on it, but it also, I, I suspect, is an opportunity to kind of either inadvertently or otherwise circumvent the very thing that you're trying to do here by by having a mathematical approach? When one uses formal
1: techniques, there are different ways to carry out the proofs. One is to use pen and paper like in classical mathematics. And it's absolutely correct that humans can make mistakes and do make mistakes, Um, Indeed, an interesting example is in in developing and reasoning about cryptography. Cryptographers in the past have made many mistakes in proving things on paper about the schemes that they've created. Um, Very exciting over the last 30, 40 years are developments in computer-supported mathematics. This is using theorem provers. A theorem prover is a tool that either automatically or typically in practice interactively Um, something that a human uses to construct a proof. And the theorem prover checks that proof with respect to um, axioms and rules of a formal logic. And provided those axioms and rules are sound, and this is something that's well-studied and well-understood in in mathematical logic, then one will come to sound conclusions about the system. So you, you cannot make a mistake. You can fail to complete a proof, but if you complete a proof, if you say QED, then it really is a theorem that you
0: proved. Wow. Well, let's go through some of the elements that you all highlight here in the publication. Can you take us through the foundations, methods, and tools section? What are we getting at here?
1: Sure. So, one question is, how do you view a system as a mathematical object? And a common way of doing this is is at a level of abstraction where you may choose not to focus on the particular details of the programming language, etc., but you work with a higher-level model, and you view a system in terms of its behaviors. And the behaviors are typically sequences of states, or states and actions, or sequences of actions and the like. Um, So this gives rise to a view of a system, and this could be a very complex distributed system as a set of possible sequences. They're called traces in the literature, a set of possible behavior traces. Hmm. And so the semantics of a system is a set of traces, and the property you might like of your system is also a set of traces, namely characterizing those good behaviors. And under this view, for example, um, the correctness or security problem becomes a question of language inclusion. Are all of the behaviors of your system contained in the language of your properties? Are all, Or said another way, are all of the behaviors of the system the good things that you would like to have? So that's one aspect that we look at. So we look at um, how you can specify systems in a way that gives rise to trace properties. So for example, as some kind of automata like Buchi automata, um, how you can specify the desired properties of the systems using some kind of transition system or temporal logic. Also very interesting in security is that some properties are not simply sets of traces, but sets of sets of traces. It's a bit technical, but those are called hyper properties. And we also look at how you can verify those or even reason about those at runtime. So, in the foundations, methods, and tools, let me try and say it at a higher level of abstraction. On one hand, we look at how you specify systems and their properties. Um, And on the other hand, we look at, given a specification of systems and their properties, how do you check that the system actually has the properties? Hmm. And this gives rise to a variety of different um, methods with associated tools. So, I've already talked about interactive theorem proving. So, that's where you would use a theorem prover to construct mathematical proofs that are checked by the by the tool so in, in typically a logic like higher order logic so a rich logic that allows you to to naturally formulate systems and their properties um, another approach is if you can formulate it in a language um, or a formalism where property checking is decidable and a very successful example of that is model checking so model checking was developed in the 80s and it is very widely used in industry uh, and, th- and there you have a description of a system as a transition system. And that, that um, description can come from a, from a high-level language, for example, by giving a semantics to a programming language or often in industry this is used for hardware, a hardware description language. So that gives you a semantics of a language as a transition system. And then a property is typically specified in a temporal logic. So for example, for a hardware system, one might specify a property like You know, if you take action A, then previously action B must have occurred, or it must be followed by action B. Uh, And then a model checker will allow you to check that all behaviors of your system satisfy that property. Then I also talk a little bit about static analysis. These are techniques that use um, different decision procedures. Uh, sometimes sound, sometimes not sound, to try and find different types of errors in your program. So they can take very complex programs and look for particular kinds of errors. So examples that are security relevant might be finding buffer overflows in your program Mm. or finding different types of injection attacks in your program or finding all sorts of memory corruption errors. So buffer overflows are an example of those. So you can find many different types of security errors using static analysis. And these can also be based on um, somehow uh, deep ideas from formal methods. For example, abstract interpretation. How do you come up with appropriate abstractions of low-level programs such that you can reason about them um, without state-space explosion? Hmm. Uh, a, A final example in that chapter, and this is something that's personally, very close to my heart, because it's something that I work on. Of course, all all things are important, but uh, (laughs) I like to talk best about my own research, is dynamic analysis. And dynamic analysis is kind of a lightweight formal method. So rather than taking the description of the system and trying to prove that every possible behavior, every possible trace of the system satisfies a property, instead, at runtime, one analyzes the current behavior of the system and checks whether that satisfies the property. Uh, And if it violates the property, one could raise some kind of an alert. That's a very interesting technique. So, for example, from a property specification, one can design a monitor that runs alongside the system, checks what the system is doing, and alerts you when the system violates the relevant um, security property. Alternatively, it's even possible to weave the monitor into the actual system itself so that the system performs the appropriate checks. Hmm. So these are some of the things we cover in Section 3.
0: Do you run into that potential problem, you know, there's that, that, um, that old thing from physics where the, you know, the observation of the thing can change the thing itself? Is that a potential hazard with dynamic analysis?
1: It's a really good question, and the answer is maybe. <laughs> so, for a for a real time system where you demand, you know, millisecond responses or whatever, if you weave extra checks in, those checks could potentially slow the system down. Mm. So, keep keep in mind, we're talking about monitoring, not enforcement. Um, enforcement is a separate question, and and. We can also talk about it. But for monitoring, it's just about observation. But the system has to produce events that are observable. Somehow you have to be able to observe the system in an interface. And if producing those observations could potentially slow the system down, then in a concurrent system or in a real-time system, that could indeed have some effect.
0: I see. Well, let's move on to the hardware elements. Can you walk us through that? Sure. So. The point there is that if we think about
1: verifying systems, we actually have to check that all parts of the system stack are, cor- are correct and secure. So, for example, um, if you have an application but the operating system is corrupted, um, the operating system can corrupt the application. Or alternatively, if you have a malicious uh, hardware platform, that malicious hardware platform could somehow work around the security of the operating system or... Um, the applications running on top of it. So one important question is just functional correctness. Is the hardware doing what it should? And we look at that. So, so how do you formulate um, what uh, hardware does at the level of registered transfer level or at other levels of abstraction? But even if, even if your hardware is functionally correct, it has the right input-output behavior, something really um, subtle and critical in practice is that there could be side channels. Mm-hmm. So consider, for example, you have hardware that is performing encryption using a private key for asymmetric encryption or a um, symmetric key. It may be that the way, and it it performs encryption correctly, but it may be that depending on the bits of the key, so depending on the key itself, different parts of the encryption takes different amounts of time. So by measuring the time taken for encryption, that could leak information about the key. So this Mm -hmm. would be an example of a timing side channel. There are other side channels, And a challenge in building hardware is to do so such that the behavior is, for example, in this case, somehow timing independent, that all possible keys exhibit identical timing behavior. So this is also an area for for, um, formal methods. And it's related to what I mentioned before, hyper properties. It's looking at, for example, pairs of traces saying if i consider a a behavior with one key and a behavior for the other key i cannot somehow distinguish them they're observationally equivalent and this is something that we also look at in the hardware um, section finally it can be the case that you can have specialized hardware for example crypto hardware and it can even be free of side channels and it implements the right functionality but if you use it in a particular way, where you make a particular number of calls, then surprising things can happen. And these are called API attacks on security hardware. And basically, we look at the problem, um, you have to envision somehow having a protocol between the attacker and the hardware can one show that this protocol doesn't lead to any security vulnerabilities. And that's also covered in this section.
0: Well, let's move on to the next section then, which is your cryptographic protocols, uh, there's a, a lot going on here to consider.
1: There is. Um, and I should uh, also point out that cryptographic protocols, I think, are really uh, a beautiful area to illustrate the power of formal methods. Hmm. So cryptographic protocols are kind of like the fruit flies of formal methods, you know little little three-line programs that are usually gotten wrong. <laughs> and and, and the, the reason they're gotten wrong. Is even if you somehow are using strong cryptography, you have an interaction between multiple parties. And moreover, there's an adversary involved. Um so typically we talk about a network adversary, sometimes called a Dola Yao adversary, and everything goes over the adversary because we assume that the adversary controls the network, which which isn't completely unrealistic. Hmm. So if we think about a, par- a, a protocol that has two parties, for example, an initiator and a responder, or a client and a server, we tend to envision the client's messages going to the server and then the server's messages going back to the client's, etc. But everything is being scheduled over the adversary. So the adversary is somehow scheduling the different components. And moreover, in practice, if you consider a server, a server may have multiple protocol executions going on with multiple clients. And the adversary can take any message from any client and send it to the server in any session that the server thinks it's running. So it can try and confuse the server. Said a little bit more technically, if we consider all of the different ways that the different parties of the protocol, for example, the initiator and the responder, can run the protocol together with an adversary, this is something that, that humans are very poor at thinking about, namely all of the different uh, you know, interleaved executions of the protocol and the traces, the global system traces that this can lead to. Right. And very often mistakes can come in. Hmm. And formal methods are very good at reasoning about this. So the behaviors, the traces of the system, well, there's an infinite collection of them because you're going to have arbitrarily many sessions of the protocol in different roles. Um, But nevertheless, there are so-called symbolic methods that have turned out to be very, very effective about reasoning about this infinite set of behaviors. You can do this by theorem proving, by reasoning about correctness using interactive theorem proving, but there are model checkers, and these go back now over 30 years, that despite the fact that you have an infinite state space, they can very effectively explore it. And these techniques, they began in the, the 90s, and at that point they could handle toy protocols toy protocols that exchange a secret or that authenticate a party and in the meantime they become very powerful and they've scaled to the point where you can take new protocols that that matter or old protocols that are going through new revisions for example tls 1.3 or Um, you know, the 5G uh, protocol for for telecommunications, if you look at how authentication is going on in that, so 5G, 5G, AKA, so authenticated key agreement, uh, or if you take modern um, payment protocols or protocols for distributed ledgers, any of these things, um, the tools are now really up to analyzing them and finding very, very subtle problems with these protocols. And these subtle Hmm. problems are attacks. You know, if there is an attack, you can literally... Use a theorem prover to rob the bank. And and, and theorem provers and model checkers are up to finding this. So this is just a fantastic uh, success story for formal methods. And it's also an interesting example where formal methods are really um, finding their way into modern practice. Because now, as part of standardization within companies, many companies are now taking this quite seriously and either using formal methods themselves or employing consultants that use them. So in this chapter, we look at that. We look at some of the techniques and tools that have been used for that. Also, um, different classes of protocols. For example, there are protocols that use randomization, that use coin flipping, or you'd like to establish probabilistic properties. So we look at so-called stochastic methods. And then we also look at um, so-called computational methods. So computational methods are the methods that cryptographers use typically to carry out proofs about cryptographic schemas. They use techniques called game-based proofs about schemas or simulation-based proofs. It's a bit technical, the details. But recently, um, theorem-proving tools have been incorporated to make these proofs very rigorous. So rather than doing pen and paper proofs that often contain errors, one can have these proofs checked using computers. So all of that is in, in, in Section 5.
0: Wow. So, help me understand here, I mean, is this really a a way to counteract the adversary's uh, creativity and and, um, unpredictability?
1: Absolutely. And the interesting thing about it is... It's not like you're using these tools where you say, well, what if the adversary were to try a man-in-the-middle attack where he stands between two sessions? Or what if he were to try and do a reflection attack? Or what if he were to try and confuse you doing this or that? One proves much stronger statements. One proves that given arbitrary parties running the protocol in different roles, for example, initiator and responder, and given arbitrary actions of an attacker... Now often there's a little footnote there for example in the computational methods it's an efficient attacker in polynomial time but using symbolic methods it's really you give an attacker powers to 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 observe and control everything on the network no matter what the attacker does this protocol satisfies the desired properties or alternatively a counterexample is found which is an attack Hmm. And and you don't need to be creative and think about the possible attacks and, and somehow program something to look for them. This is saying that no adversary doing anything possible within some realm of capabilities can attack the protocol.
0: Hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah, Very well, strong let, statements. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, well, let's move on to section six, which is where you cover software and large-scale systems.
1: Right. So, so... Here the distinction is sometimes between the design level for cryptographic protocols, so the people go all the way to the implementation, and what can you do with large-scale systems themselves. There are different types of things you can do. One type of thing is you can try and ask questions like, can a secret be leaked? And this uh, this is also related to the question of side channels. Um, Is it possible that somehow in performing different types of computations that secrets, for example, secret keys or classified data, could be leaked to interfaces? For example, an interface might be um, a TCP socket somehow uh, communicating with with, uh, outsiders over the internet. Could these secrets be leaked? And this is the question of information flow control. And there are different types of techniques for doing that. For example, there are type systems where if your programs are type correct, then you know that information can't be leaked. And one can perform different types of static analysis and model checking um, techniques to make sure that information cannot be leaked. Then parts of the chapter look at verification using theorem provers. For example, how would one verify cryptographic libraries to show that they have functional properties or no side channels? Or how would you verify programs that um, have either low-level programming languages like C or even Assembler? Um, How would you apply this to very particular um, kinds of systems? Uh, So for example, a number of groups have been looking at verifying the security and functional correctness of parts of operating systems or hypervisors, um, either in full or at least showing the absence of different classes of bugs. And there are many different types of systems. So so part of the section looks at low-level code, but another part, for example, looks at web applications. So web applications are critical because many companies have web applications. These web applications are available to the entire world 24-7. They're typically not protected by by firewalls. They're typically a good target for, for attackers. So what types of vulnerabilities can arise when one uses different web programming languages like JavaScript? How can one verify that um, scripting language environments are um, free of different types of security vulnerabilities? How can one verify and reason about distributed applications that run in part on the client and the server? So these are the types of questions that are looked at in section Hmm. 6.5. A final part is full stack verification. And that looks at the question of how can you go from high-level applications running on a system and verify those but of course the verification of those high-level applications depends on what's happening in the operating system and then bring and also compilers so bring elements like operating systems and compilers in and ultimately this all runs on hardware so you also have hardware verification now one can verify these things independently but how do you bring them all together so that you can make a statement saying you know, provided my assumptions about the hardware hold, then I know something about the correctness of the applications running on top of the hardware that have been compiled and run on an operating system, which is in turn on running on the hardware. Mm. So this is a question of how you you verify or make statements about the entire stack. And we also look at techniques for doing that
0: well, the final section here in the publication addresses configuration, which is sort of, uh, you know the a critical thing that ties it all together
1: yes. so so uh, often if you you know if you verify an operating system, if you go that far or a file system, you still rely on humans to configure it correctly. So take the case of a file system. A central question is how you set up authorization. So who may do what? You know how you set up access control lists or how you use things like role-based access control, or maybe you have some kind of rule-based access control. Even if you verified that the access control enforcement mechanism, some kind of security monitor, works correctly, if you set up the authorizations incorrectly, you know, if you say, for example, um, I can access your bank account information, but that isn't what's intended. Maybe you only intend that the user can access their bank account information or their branch manager can access it. If you get these things right, it doesn't matter. If you get these things wrong, it doesn't matter that you verified uh, all of the software and hardware running on the system. Hmm. So in section seven, we look at how you can reason about and verify that a configuration has desired properties. And typically here, one can use decision procedures and automate Um, the question of property checking. So it's a very interesting and successful application area for formal methods, also one that many people aren't so aware of.
0: Well, I mean, let's sort of wrap all this up and and bring it back to the the reasoning, you know, sort of the why. I mean, this is an area you cover in the publication. Why does all this matter? Why go through the effort to enable all of these uh, methods here?
1: So so that's a fascinating question and, and also something that I address to some extent in the motivation section of the chapter. And you can look at it from two perspectives. One perspective is systems are really buggy. This is a huge source of security problems. How can we reduce the number of bugs that we have? How can we find different classes of bugs that often attackers exploit? But one can... Look at the question from a completely different perspective and say, rather than trying to eliminate particular classes of bugs, let's look at the question of how we put system development and implementation on a firm formal footing. Hmm. What kinds of scientific methods are there available to design systems that do what they should? One thing I think that excites many researchers, including myself, in formal methods what is the right mathematical basis? So, how do we build foundations, methods, and tools? To put this all on a firm, formal footing. Whereas if you come from practice, you may be more motivated from the question of how do you eliminate, for example, memory corruption errors or your products, your cryptographic hardware has had had side channel vulnerabilities. So how can you eliminate those? So are different ways of approaching the topic, and these are different motivations for it.
0: If you'll indulge me, um I guess something that I'm having trouble wrapping my head around as as someone you know outside of this world is how do you deal with the, the what I see as a possible infinite set of, of possibilities, an infinite set of configurations that you know, you're dealing with hardware? And it seems to me like all this stuff can spin out exponentially into all of the things you have to check and, and, and be careful of. Um, how do you put guardrails on that? How do you constrain the set uh, so that you don't spin off into infinity? So, so
1: often there are infinitely many possibilities. So, the example of model checking, if you consider a system where different parties can run the protocol and you can have multiple protocol instances, so mul- the server can be running multiple threads, then infinitely many things can happen. The adversary can do infinitely many things. You know, if the adversary has seen some message and seen some key, Uh, He or she can encrypt the message with the key and then encrypt it again and then maybe pair it with itself and then maybe hash it. There are infinitely many things. Hmm. But in mathematics, we can reason about the infinite Think of what you learned in in high school or college mathematics about induction. You can prove properties about the natural numbers or about you prove that some property holds for a program that manipulates lists. So there are infinitely many natural numbers or infinitely many lists or infinitely many binary trees. The, The way you would do that is by induction. So induction, for example, is one technique for reasoning about an infinite set. So when you're doing interactive theorem proving, you're often proving things by induction. You prove by induction that Any way that you, you know, given a behavior of the system, any possible way you could extend it would not violate your property. That would be a typical example of something you could prove. And theorem provers can do this and often it can automate it. Or in the case, for example, of protocol model checking, the search space is infinite. So one has to set up constrained systems that reasons about all the infinite behaviors of the attacker and despite the fact that there are infinitely many behaviors, one can show, for example, that the attacker could not violate the property.
0: Our thanks to David Basin for joining us. You can check out the entire formal Methods for Security Knowledge Area publication on the Cybok website, cybok.org. This podcast is a product of the University of Bristol. Cybok is funded by the UK National Cybersecurity Program and led by Professor Awais Rashid, along with Andrew Martin, Emil Lupu, Steve Schneider, Howard Shivers, and Yulia Cherdansiova. The Cybok podcast is produced by The Cyberwire with senior producer Jennifer Iben and Bristol University's Helen Jones. The executive producer is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.